Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Okay, did you see the story? Uh, judging by the response I've seen on Twitter and an email, many of you have, NASI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, <clears throat> excuse me, is recommending all Canadians who haven't had a COVID booster get one for the fall, if it's been at least six months, since your last vaccine or since last getting infected with COVID. NASI focused particularly on, you know, I did it again. I did. I swore I'd never do it again. I ate a couple of peanuts before I went on the air. And, you know, the predictable is going on. So bear with me. It gets stuck in your throat and then it's a fight. So NASI focused uh, particularly on those over 65, residents of long-term care homes. I know I'm not very smart, eh? Did it before. Ruined my voice for an hour. And I said, I'll never do it again. And I'm not taking an IQ test today. Uh, those over 65, residents of long-term care homes. Now there's something wrong with my eyes. If you're pregnant and or at high risk due to an underlying medical condition, glad I'm about to talk to a doctor. Also strongly recommending the booster shot for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities, members of racialized communities, and essential workers. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is back with us, infectious diseases specialist at Toronto General Hospital and associate professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. Not very smart, eh, Dr. Bogosh? Hi. I think we, we deal with forgiveness. Peanuts are delicious. <laughs> no big deal. Hope it goes down at some point. And hope you don't choke live yeah. on there. I know. I did it when I did it last time. I could barely talk for an hour. But then oh, then my voice cleared and it got like super deep. And that was that was pretty cool, actually. <laughs> you get the Johnny Cash voice. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. Enjoying the summer. Working a little bit. Taking a bit of time off. But uh, so far, so good. Yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm doing fine, all things considered. Uh, everything seems to be working. All the medications I'm getting, Wonderful. and uh, I'm feeling great. You know, if, honestly, if I uh, if I didn't know I had a problem, I I wouldn't know I have a problem. Wonderful so, to hear that. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, talk to us, please, because I've been looking at some of the responses on Twitter, and and people are not exactly enthusiastic well, about okay. landing up for booster what, shots. I think first of all, we have to calibrate what Twitter is. Right, we know. Twitter tends to bring out certain certain opinions, and certain opinions are amplified. But let's just let's just stick with facts. We all, it's no secret. We know who gets really sick from COVID. COVID is still around. Of course, there's less of it now in the summer than there was in the winter time, but it's still here. And we're we predictably we know we're going to see more in the fall and the winter. We know that. That's I don't think that should come to a surprise to anybody. And also, we know who is at greatest risk for more severe manifestations of the virus. And you listed them right there. People who are on the older end of the spectrum, people with underlying medical conditions, putting them at risk. People who live in long-term care facilities and nursing homes. Right? So, to no one's surprise, yeah, we know the vaccines do a very, very good job in preventing more severe manifestations of the virus, like hospitalization, ICU stay, and death. And those are the people, uh, and a few others that you mentioned, are strongly recommended to get the vaccine when it rolls out sometime in the fall. Makes makes pretty good sense to me. So when you and I talked, wasn't the last time, but maybe the time before, you were of the opinion, as I have been, that the messaging wasn't the best. 
And people got tired of it. People got tired of the message. And I think I'm seeing that now. I'm seeing some of the pushback, not just on uh, on Twitter, but elsewhere. Actually, I spoke with uh, a couple of your colleagues in the industry, in the profession of medicine, and I asked them, well, do you have a booster shot? They said, nope, not going to do it. And so, so we're actually now, are we now at a, a situation where it's definitely an individual choice and this is an advisory? Or is it more than that? No, I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find mandates in many places. I'm sure they exist some places, but not, not too many places. Certainly, mm-hmm. I think within the healthcare sector, you'll still see some. But outside of that, you're not seeing mandates in too many places. So obviously, this is a this is a personal choice, uh, and much like the flu shot is a is a personal choice. Right. Um, and again, like at the end of the day, there's really good data available about you know who you don't even need good data. You can talk to people who work in hospitals. Who do you see in hospital? Who's sick with COVID? You know, it's, you're still seeing that a lot. No, not very much right now. It's summertime, but you know we'll still we'll, we'll see more. We will see more, and it's kind of predictable. We see people who are on the older end of the spectrum, and people with underlying medical conditions that put them at greater risk. That's almost exclusively who we're seeing in the hospital. And uh, you know, we know the vaccine right at the beginning of the pandemic when the virus hadn't mutated as much as to the extent that it is now. The beginning, it, it did a really good job at stopping infection and onward transmission. But of course, we know the virus has mutated. It doesn't do as good a job as that as it once did. But it still does a lot of good in keeping the most at-risk people uh, out of hospital. So what do you... Preventing people from dying. So let's, like, it's, 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 it's really simple. Now, but your point is, well, take it. The messaging has to be smart, right? And there's no one-size-fits-all messaging. You're talking to yeah. 4 million people yeah. here. So you've got to target different, you know, age, language, culturally appropriate messaging, and lower barriers to vaccination as well. You don't want to make people work to get it. You got to bring the vaccine to the people rather than people to vaccine. So what do you say, what do you say, Doctor Bogars? What do you say to people who just don't trust it? Now, the World Health Organization uh, said in May that COVID nineteen was no longer considered a global health emergency, but they do say the virus still poses a threat. What do you say to people who just uh, have serious doubts? That's fine. I don't say anything. I listen. You know, what am I going to tell them? Nothing. I'll listen to their questions. I'll listen to their concerns and have factual, factual, non-judgment, uh, uh, judgment-free conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the that's the best path forward, right? You can't, uh, you just can't have one message to forty million people, right? This is there's no, you can't. Individual conversations and and conversations that need to be focused on 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 different groups. And I think we should be doing more listening than talking. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll we'll see. I mean, we're we're halfway through the summer, and uh, it, won't, it won't be long before these uh, boosters will be available. I just thought when I saw it as a story, I thought I'm going to lead off with this and ask you for your views and your thoughts, and then we'll see what our callers have to say. Um, COVID yeah. is around. COVID is still around, and it's still going to take people's lives, isn't it? Well, it, it is exactly, and it's going to wax and wane for an indefinite period of time. And, you know, right now, if you take a timestamp of where we are mid-July in Canada, you've got the wastewater signal that's really, really low. You've got hospitalizations that are significant, uh, declining significantly. Like, all the metrics are pointing in the right direction. We're actually in a better place now than we've been for a long, long time. That's really good news. That's good. doesn't mean COVID isn't here. Of course it is. It's just there's just not as much around. And, and of course, we know, you know, fast forward 
few months and we're going to see more of it, just like we know influenza is going to come around uh, this year, just like other respiratory viruses that are seasonal are going to come around. So we'll see more. We will. Uh, but uh, and and you know, obviously, you know, for the people that are listening, you can you can make a smart choice. If you're, you know, if you're at risk of more severe manifestations of the virus, you want to avoid a doctor's visit, an eMERGE visit, a hospital visit, you can significantly reduce your risk by getting a booster shot. It's as simple as that. They're widely available. There's no shortage of them. Um, and as you pointed out earlier, Roy, you know, six months after your last infection or six months after your last vaccination, when that fall campaign rolls out, it's a good idea to get one. The definition of regressive, it means that it has a proportionally bigger impact on lower income households. And that's exactly what the clean fuel regulations will do. The uh, parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, on this program a couple of weeks ago, talking about the clean fuel regulations that came into effect, which uh, will be driving your gas prices, gasoline prices, further and further upward. And then the Bank of Canada shows up with an interest rate uh, hike to 5%, which is the highest in 22 years. So you got to think about this, the impact that it has on Canadians. That's an impact on banks. It has an impact on the economy. It has an impact on everyday good Canadian folks. So I was reading a tweet from Shane Wenzel, who is a home builder in Calgary. And Mr. Wenzel tweeted this. I asked our sales manager why 10 of our customers didn't occupy their new homes last month. Her response is captured below. And here's what he added to the tweet from the office manager. One thing I can assure you is every one of these homeowners tried to move mountains to close. They did not walk away lightly. The issue is when they were approved for their mortgage in early 2022 at 2 to 2.5% interest. They did not anticipate rates rising more than double their original rate. So they had to walk away. How many Canadians are struggling and suffering because of this 5% um, Bank of Canada interest rate and what it does to your other interest rates and what it does to your life and your ability to pay bills when you add it to inflation? Many questions to be asked, and uh, there's more going on with the... uh, uh, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions considering procedural and regulatory changes to help financial institutions under mortgage lending stress because a rising interest rate has made it increasingly for, and difficult for homeowners to make their mortgage payments, blah, 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 blah. Except it's not blah, 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 blah. It's very serious business, and it affects every one of us. So we go to the one man we trust on the economy. Well, we trust a number of people, but... I'd, I'd be lying if I didn't say we had Professor Eric Cam at the top, macroeconomics professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. Now I've gotten pissed off some people. Um, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time. Where do we begin this? Why don't we get your reaction to the 5% interest rate? Hi, Roy. Please Hi. continue to uh, praise me there. Uh, the answer is you use the word anticipate. And I think that this is really uh, at the heart of this issue, which is I think that Many people, anyway, just when rates were at 0.25%, when the prime was at 025 that's almost free money. I think a lot of people did anticipate that it couldn't stay there forever. And if you look historically, that was true. And just almost heuristically, or, you know, when you look out your window, you say to yourself, 
can interest rates be almost zero forever? Well, no, they couldn't be. So I think there was an anticipation that they would go up. But nobody, no Canadian working outside the Bank of Canada could have predicted that it would go from 0.25, 10 straight increases, to 5%. This could never have been predicted. This, the speed, the magnitude, could just have never have been predicted, Roy. And we've talked about this before, and we can delve into both of these issues if you want, because I think we are getting very close to doomsday. And I rarely say that. I like to think of myself as glass half full. But we are getting to the margin. You talk about 10 or so people that have walked away from their houses. I think that as this inflationary spiral now is getting closer and closer to absolutely taking the bottom out of the housing market and the bottom out of the labor market, to quote one money trader that I spoke to this week, he predicted blood in the streets. And I said to him, don't you think that might be a little bit excessive? And he said, no, for two reasons. Because if you think it's going to hit the domestic residential market, I'm seeing what it's doing now to businesses and the business vacancies and businesses that have to walk away from their warehouses. So, Roy, you add this up and it's coming and it's coming fast. Yeah. You know, I when I talked about Mr. Wenzel's tweet, that's last month. He's a home builder. Ten of his customers walked away before we got to 5%. Before we got to 5%. We're at 5% now. So blood in the streets and doomsday from Eric Cam, I don't expect to hear that. Please continue. What 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 do you what do you I don't know if you're predicting or you're warning or you're concerned or all of the above. I'm all of the above. I mean, how can you not be? I just I look oh, at Oh, I'm scared. Numbers. Honestly, Eric, I'm scared. Yeah, I am scared too. I'm scared for this country. I'm scared for homeowners. I'm scared for, as I've made a little bit of a joke, people who consider this luxury of keeping a roof over their children's head and clothes on them and food in them. Because it's just getting to be demonstratively awful. And, you know, I, out of the closet, Roy, I take a very small prescription every day for obsessive compulsive disorder. And I would like to give the Bank of Canada a small prescription for obsessive compulsive disorder. I understand that they want to get the inflation rate down to 2%. But what on earth is the hurry to do it on the backs of anybody who has a job or eats or owns a home or rents a home? I don't understand. And my favorite statistic of the day that I've said before on your show, but I'll say it again because I think it's becoming even more and more important. Well, two statistics. Number one, not that I advocate to have a million dollar mortgage, but if you have a $1 million mortgage, which is not out of reach in this country right now, a $1 million mortgage, those by uh, biweekly payments, Roy, have now doubled. They've doubled. So what you used to pay every other week, now you're paying per week. And then you say, but a lot of these people have already renegotiated and have bring, brought into their expectations function those increases. No. Four out of five mortgages in this country have not renegotiated since the rates started to go up. So I don't know what I can do. I, I don't know if I can come on your show and I will never lie to the people that listen to the Chorus Radio Network and say things are going to be okay. They're going to be okay if you're wealthy. They're going to be okay if you keep your job and you keep your spending to a bare minimum in many cases, Roy. But people, remember the 80s? Remember 1991? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course you do. People are going to start having no choice 
but to walk away from their homes because they just flat out can't afford it. Who can afford a million dollar mortgage? It's ridiculous. It's not conscionable. And there better be a rethinking very, very soon before it seriously is too late. And we just see unemployment skyrocket in this country. Vacancy sees skyrocket in this country. And, and I hate to say it, but this does nothing for the homeless problem in, in our cities. So I don't know what people want to hear me say. And by the way, you asked for prediction. I think the rate's going up one more time before 2013 is, uh, sorry, 2023. That's wishful thinking. Oh, yeah. 2023 give me, please give me 2013. Over. Oh, my. I have to take a break here, but let me ask you quickly before we do that, and we'll come back. Was it necessary for the Bank of Canada to raise the rate to five? No, it was necessary for the Bank of Canada to raise the rate. It was necessary that we got away from 0.25%. And, you know, Roy, for the exact same reasons, we don't have to be repetitive. I could, We could go back and replay the shows when I was talking about how the pandemic stimulus was too much too fast. And you can just use the exact same citations and say why 0.25 is too cheap in terms of borrowing money. Mm -hmm. But the point is, let's combine the pandemic, combine the supply chain shortages, combine the speed at which they've brought the prime to five, and we're in a whole heap of trouble. Let me ask you about the banks. When I read that the Office of uh, Superintendent of Financial Institutions is considering regulatory changes to help financial institutions under mortgage lending stress, that makes me nervous. Should it? It should. It should. Well, number one, I don't know what the hell it means. Number two, they're going to help banks do what? They're going to help banks give people 90-year amortization periods. That's the word. So, yeah, so they can have three lifetimes to pay off their mortgage. I mean, then you're going to get into what they did in the United States with the subprime crisis where people that truly can't afford a home think they can afford a home and that they'll inevitably lose. I mean, this is the problem, right? And, you know, you you keep saying, as you should, 5%. But, you know, 5%, that's the, that's the interest rate that CIBC borrows from the Bank of Canada. The mortgage rate is creeping up to eight, nine. I've even seen 10.25% at one institution this week. So we shouldn't get fooled. You know, we keep seeing this number five, but it's not five. It's a lot higher than five. And of course, your, your federal government there in Ottawa seems to be completely tone deaf, right? They keep coming out and they keep saying, well, in so many cases, we're going to raise your taxes yep. and then we're going to give you a rebate. Yeah. How about this? How about don't raise your taxes or how about lower your taxes even for the time being? How about take disposable income as your target? I mean, we know the Bank of Canada. They're not going to budge. The Bank of Canada is not going to budge. They are militant. They are going to bring down that inflation rate to 2% no matter the cost on the economy. So we have to almost take that as given because I don't see that changing. So then you look at your across the street to the federal government and say, OK, well, what could you do to lighten the load on the taxpayer? And I can't believe that their answer to that is carbon taxes and things like that. So I don't quite understand why both of these arms of government that are supposed to be working together are only working together to take money out of people's pockets. So I just I'm kind of confounded, Roy, and I'm just kind of scared because, like I say, I, I'd rather go a little over the top on the nervous than a little over the top and say, ah, this too shall work itself out. Because, again, I'm 55 years old, but I do remember my parents across the street neighbors 
walking away from their home when interest rates hit 21%. Do I think they're going to hit 21%? No. But now, do I think they're going to hit double digits? They will absolutely hit double digits. And just think about that. When it wasn't that long ago, about 18 months ago, that you could still get a 2% mortgage for five years, Roy. You say they're going to double digits. How quickly? Oh, I think very quickly. Because I think there's going to be another rate hike in September, October. And that'll absolutely push some of the mortgage rates up into the double digits, depending on what you're looking at. I've been keeping an eye closely on bank rates and what they're doing with mortgages. And, you know, they're up there now, right? They're creeping up 7 8%, some yeah. banks even 9%, depending right. on how short-term or long-term you want to go, fixed versus variable. Um, and I'll tell you, I just, and, I, and anybody out there who has a variable rate mortgage doesn't need to hear me say, but uh, I feel you. And I, I feel your pain because, again, you know, the economy should on some level be somewhat predictable. We always say that we want things like inflation to be low and predictable and unemployment to be low and predictable. Well, it was almost fooling the population to leave 0.25 there for such a long period of time and then decide to raise it, but not decide to raise it at some conscionable speed, but at, you know, speeds that are only rivaled on the Indianapolis 500 or the Daytona 500 speedways, right? And you can't prepare for that. You can't prepare to have your mortgage double. You just, you can, no one can prepare for that because no one's disposable no. income doubles. No. And so no. I guess I'm just sitting here today. Yes, a privileged Canadian. I'm a tenured professor. No one's going to have a tag day for me and nor should you. But as you know, I don't care about me. I don't care about other professionals who are looking at this going, well, I can buy bonds now at the bank at higher rates of interest. Sure. That's an easy answer. It's not hard when you're wealthy. But I'm worried about the people that aren't wealthy and that are now struggling, as I say, for luxuries, Roy, like homes and food and gas for their car. We haven't seen this since the early 80s, and I never thought we'd go back to those bad old days. But slowly but surely, no, I'm sorry, quickly but surely, we're getting there. So what's going to happen to our neighbor to the south, because everything that happens to them bounces up here as well. Are, are they going to uh, hit, well, the perfect storm? I don't know. They've been they've been kind of quieter, right? Like their rates have crept up, but not to the magnitude that our rates have gone up. And their housing market is, I mean, because there's, you know, 400 million Americans compared mm -hmm. to our 40 million Canadians, mm -hmm. things can be diluted a little bit more in the States. Right. Because every state is so different. And their, and their mortgage rates don't change. No, mortgage rates don't change. But they haven't gone up with the magnitude that they've gone up here. Our central bank is is really taking um, an almost unprecedented lead at the speed at which they want to bring down the price level. And, and I, say, I say I'm out of the closet. They had to bring down the price level. We couldn't let inflation stay at the nine percent it was at. But again, I don't think a gradual decrease in that number, Roy, would have been so bad. I think that taking away every available extra dollar out of people's pockets isn't the way to do it. Is there and, a way, in, in, in about 45 seconds, can you tell me, is there a way to preclude what you fear is going to happen? No, there's no way to preclude it because the Bank of Canada aren't stupid. They have ears and eyes. And they know that the pressure that they're going to put on Canadians is an unprecedented, ridiculous level of pressure. So they know exactly what they're doing. They just believe that there's a greater good. And I disagree. And frankly, I think a lot of private sector and public sector economists disagree. So all I can do 
is give people the only advice that makes any sense at all. Keep your hand tight on your wallet, keep discretionary spending very low. And when you were saving money, if you were saving money at any period for those rainy days, well, it's about to pour. And so be super careful with your spending and don't put yourself in a perilous position because that's all we have right now, Roy. Okay. It's everybody, it's every, all hands on deck because the next couple of years are gonna be really bumpy and I don't think the rate increases are, are at their conclusion. So I'm kind of left shaking my head, same as you, Roy. I don't know, I don't get it. Carol Todd is an amazing person as well. She's Amanda's mother, as you know, I'm sure. Amanda was 15 when she took her own life in 2012 after being viciously cyberbullied by Aidan Coban of the Netherlands. He was convicted uh, in the Netherlands and he was convicted in Canada. And uh, Carol, who works tirelessly to, to maintain Amanda's profile and, and her influence posthumously on, on everyone, I was going to say young people, but everyone in this country. Carol got news the other day that a Dutch court has added, as globalnews.ca reported, to her, quote, never-ending story. Carol Todd joins us on the Roy Green Show. I won't ask you how you are, Carol. I know how you are. Um, okay. But this this must have been an absolutely shocking. Tell us, please, what what did what is the Dutch court telling you they 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 want now? Well, as from the news, we find out that the Dutch courts need more information from Canada about what would it be like if Aidan Coban had been serving his sentence. Time, the 13 years in Canada. Um, and so when they get this information, then I guess they'll process it and work on the Dutch conversion of the 13 years. Do you understand that? Because I don't. <laughs> um, it's hard. Uh, I saw a document coming out of... Um, the Netherlands on Thursday, and it it was the timeline of what we think Aiden would, Mr. Coban would be serving if he were in Canada, and um, it was something like you know in 2025 he could apply for um, day parole, um, and then 2026 there was another thing for um, a different kind of of parole, and then it was like 2031, his sentence would be almost completed, um, and he would be done and gone or whatever. Um, it is complex. It's complex, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure why the Dutch courts waited so long in order to, find, to try and get this information when, um, I mean, he was sentenced back in October, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that part's very frustrating. Yeah, I mean, exactly why now? And, and so they want to know all the particulars of what his sentence to, would likely be like if he's serving his sentence in Canada before they adjust his sentence in the Netherlands. 
correct? Yes, that's correct. So, so um, but, but I see. I don't, like, yeah, I'm sorry, Carol, go ahead. It's like apples and bananas. Yeah, right? it is. Countries have different justice systems. And um, for your audience, the, on June 29th, when there was a Dutch hearing, um, the process, Dutch prosecution asked for four and a half years, and the Dutch defense for Mr. Coban asked for one year with six months conditional. Um, so I'm not sure why they didn't ask for that further information at that time. Um, so I have no clue what's going to happen, except I do know that now everything's been postponed. Um, and it's summer break now for Dutch court or that particular Dutch court with the judges. And I'm hearing that it could be September slash October, um, that, it can go back to hearing and then another few weeks decision. So it's another long wait. And you know what? If Mr. Coban gets any time at all um, in the conversion, um, in my in my heart, I know he'll try to appeal because that's what he's been doing since day one, even with his Dutch trial back in 2017-18. So that would extend it for another year, right? Go to appeals court. Yeah. So Amanda's never ending story is never ending still. And this follows on the heels of this country actually emotionally reeling over the fact that Paul Bernardo was removed from a maximum security prison, Millhaven in Ontario, to a medium security prison in uh, in uh, Quebec. And mm-hmm. all of the powers that be in Ottawa seem to express uh, great uh, confusion. No, we didn't know. No, nobody told us. No, no, nobody, nobody knows. It's just a fact that noses are growing longer. That's the dead giveaway. <laughs> but it, it, this must be so difficult for you. And I, and, and you, you maintain this wonderful uh, website, the Amanda Todd Legacy, AmandaToddLegacy.org. You're you're trying to to uh, sustain the memory of your daughter and honor the memory of your daughter. And the guy who drove her to commit suicide, I didn't like to say that to you, um, he's now, he seems to me like he's getting consideration from the Dutch court. That's what it sounds like to me. Well, Dutch laws and Canadian laws in the justice system are completely different. And I know that we feel that Canadian justice system is, is fairly lenient um, in terms of years of, of sentencing and conviction. Um but the Dutch court, the Dutch laws are, are definitely, I feel, are um, a bit more lenient than, than Canada, if you can believe that. Um, I have, people have, have messaged and emailed me and, and you see on my social media that they're just devastated and angry that why he won't get the 13 years. Yeah. Um, ultimately, it would be great if he got the 13 years, but I knew that was never coming because there's was a talk that he could get zero, right? Because he's he's been convicted in Canada of crimes he's already been convicted of in the Netherlands, and under their law, um, he should could get get zero years for that. But we know with Canada deciding to prosecute him independently, um, so you know what? And I've spent this last ten and a half years. Um, if I work on anger and frustration. Um, it will just spiral me and I'll get nothing done. Um, I have to look at, at the 
half full side and say that um, every time we have a delay, um, I get to talk to you, I get to talk to others, and it brings Amanda's story back up into our minds, and it brings um, the online safety and the exploitation and the sextortion topic into people's heads, and hopefully my, my hope is that everyone will talk about it so that they can, can educate themselves and talk about their kids, because exploitation, sextortion, online behavior is, is running rampant out there in the world, and none of us are safe, like any ages, with catfishing, with, with scams, with exploitation. We're not safe, so we have to educate ourselves with the resources out there just in case someone makes a slip up and something happens just like it did with Amanda. It, it, it's so easy and it's so fast and it's so insidious that, that it's horrible, um, but we have to protect ourselves in some ways. So that's my half full part is that Amanda's story and her legacy will continue to educate us. Um, and if it's another year, then we'll keep talking about it in the forefront and um, keep our families and our kids safe, not only in Canada, but globally, right? Joe Warrington has been a friend of mine for many years. Post Media, Toronto Sun columnist, one of the best journalists in my humble opinion. We've worked on some cases together and, and been very successful getting situations resolved, like bringing an 18-year-old Canadian out of Cuba where he was being kidnapped by the communist government, quite literally. And we put so much pressure on Ottawa, on the Harper government, they, uh, they had to work. They had to get off their behinds and work to get this young man back into Canada, and they did. Joe, it's a story I'll, I will never forget. And to me, that is, it, it leads me to what we're going to be talking about. It's when, it's how media can do and does do an excellent job when we're, when we get something between our teeth and decide we're going to do it. How are you? Well, doing great. It's great to be with you. And, Noah, it's uh, interesting that you recall that case. And, of course, the, all the interpreters that we were involved with. Yeah, you know, not only bringing in, but we were dealing with them and helping them while they were fighting for their lives in in great peril. You know, and uh, and you're right. In each case, um, the governments did come through. Uh, different governments, Harper and Trudeau, and we worked on things uh, with Cretchen and Martin and with Mulroney before that, sort of dating ourselves. But but you you, you know, I remember the the woman that was in Mexico. Um, as well, being on your show about that, um, and she was stuck down there. And so, uh, yeah, uh, politicians and governments respond to heat. And uh, the only way you got to put it right on, you know, right on their backside at all times. And, you know, obviously, uh, it's almost like a mini campaign, isn't it? Like an election campaign. Once you get what you want, um, you know, you get the person saved. They want a little bit of a pat on the back. You give them that, and then you get on to the next thing um, to try to help and use these, you know, these positions that we are blessed to have. That's obviously a lot of work to keep these jobs and, and, and that kind of thing. And it's a tough environment to do it. It's you know, it's like a high wire act. But uh, if you don't use it, you know, you can't just be promoting Bruce Springsteen's concert tour. You, you know, it's got to be more than that. And 
you know, we, we certainly, and I, that's why I respect you so much and what you do, because you take on the tough issues every week. And really, I, I get the sense from you, I know, I say this with great respect, you almost come at it where it's like it's your last show. Um, and if, if you step on that landmine, so be it. And uh, I think that's what makes you great. No, thank you, Joe. And that's really the way I approach things. If, if what I say is going to cost me um, my job or it's going to cost me, um, well, if it's going to cost me, so be it. There are things that need to be said. There are positions that need to be taken. There are people who need to be protected. There are people who be, need to be held responsible. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, oh, God, I hate cliches. Uh, that is that is our that is our responsibility in media, and I've I've argued I've argued with people, I've 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 discussed with people, I've laughed with people, probably even cried over a couple of beers with people about what media's responsibility is, what our role is in society, what our job is in society. And that's what I want to talk to you about because we've got C eighteen. We got a, most Canadians probably have yeah. only, only sort of surveillance um, information on what that's about. Uh, we have media under tremendous stress, and I uh, I'm pointing yeah. the finger at Meta and uh, Google. They're bandits, in my view. Um, it's not a view that's shared by everybody, and and I stand with our Canadian media. Say if you're going to use our product, pay for it. But. And but Canadians can you know you can go to your go to the news website. You don't need Meta. You don't need Google. They've you got the, the websites anyway. Joe, um, let me ask you: How do you approach a story when you when you when you get an idea for a story, and you have such a unique way of reporting and writing? I've, I've never, I literally never read an account from you that I did not enjoy reading, and. It sounds like a mutual admiration society here, but I haven't read a story from you that has not made me feel like, gee, I'm glad I read that. How do you well, do it? it? Well, it's easy to say that. I know you don't always agree with with uh, what I write. No, I don't. And, and I don't always agree with your position on the show, but I feel I'm like shocked. And I think that that's the standard that we have got to keep and we've got to bring to everyone else. The No offense to this, you know, a couple older guys talking about you know, whatever the younger reporters are, a lot of them are on independent media, but they, their feelings get hurt awfully easily. And, you know, they want to counsel people and, and, and block them and destroy them and, and talk about them. Of course, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to have a drag it out battle uh, on some issues. You're obviously going to agree on some issues, but you still respect each other a lot after. In fact, sometimes you even listen and change your mind. I think back to you know, uh, I'm going to answer your question about, you know, how, how we approach these things. But, you know, I, I, I'm always humbled about the, the times that I think I got it wrong or, you know, sort of on the wrong side. I didn't have the full picture. And I think back to the Iraq war and how Jean Chrétien didn't, we didn't go into that conflict with the U.S. At the time, I was really upset about that uh, and, and articulated that, wrote that, even went to Washington to talk about that. In retrospect, I don't think that feel that way now um, and I don't think many people do turns out that Gretchen made the right decision there and you know that's important to mention now because we're in this kind of uh, you know mind frame now again with obviously with the with the situation with Ukraine and Russia so it's something that I'm mindful of in everything I approach I think I learned from that 
I've learned from Afghanistan as well because I saw, you know, and I was obviously when, uh, you know, they pulled out of there, left all those people that we cared so much about mm-hmm. to fend for themselves. We got a few out, people that we knew. They were lucky, uh, you know, obviously they were lucky to get out of there. Many didn't get out of there. And so I, I have a very dubious approach towards war and conflict now. I just don't look at it the same way. And I'm no expert about war. I've been to those conflicts. I've been to Ukraine. I've been to Afghanistan. Uh, and so I have some sense of it. Um, and I'm mistrustful of, of all this all-in, all agendas now. I'd rather sit down and hammered out the, the way that Reagan and uh, Tip O'Neill did, you know, in the days of the American during the Cold War, um, and, and Margaret Thatcher and, and the like. And then, of course, they didn't always agree either, but they all liked each other. At the end, they'd go for a drink, and that's what I believe has to happen. Yeah. Yeah, that would, that's the way it used to be in, in Ottawa and Washington. They would uh, battle each other fiercely during the day. And at night, they'd, you, they'd, you know, they'd go for a drink or go for dinner. You know, just to answer your question, I didn't really answer it, but the process is interesting because there's different things. Obviously, there are floating stories, and, you know, you cover stories that are happening, whether it's a horrible murder in Le- uh, Leslieville. And, you know, I mean, on those things, you try to get human angles to them. Mm-hmm. You don't just get the stats or the police report, but you get out there and talk to, the, you know, the, the widower or whatever, all these kinds of things to sort of bring a full perspective. But it's interesting today, you know, this is, I was just thinking about this, and I was thinking of you right away. My son and I went to Bellevue House in Kingston. We're down in Kingston Way on our summer vacation. And Bellevue House was where Sir Johnny McDonald lived. And that's a national historic site. And, you know, obviously we're excited to go in there. And, of course, it's just about six blocks from where they tore the statue down a couple of years ago. And I'm still smarting from that. And I was there. My dad is in his 80s. And we watched them stuff this, uh, you know, this beautiful bronze statue, a huge thing, so heavy into a storage shed here in Kingston and the feisty old Scott didn't want to go in. It took them two hours to push him in there. And, and that statue had been up 125 years. I mean, it was just ridiculous. But I went in there today with my son and the Parks Canada people were in there and everything they said about Sir Johnny McDonald was negative. Everything from that. He was a drunk, the bottle, he married his first cousin. He bribed his way to the, you know, the, uh, the prime ministership. He was responsible for killing Louis Rial, obviously the residential schools, went on and on and on. So you're sitting there as a columnist and you don't just get the explosion, but your lights go on. You know, like you think, wow, wow, I'm on holidays now, but I'll probably do a column on that. I tweeted out uh, and I tweeted at you, uh, Roy, just to show you the picture of Bellevue. The reason I mentioned it is that it, it occurred to me. That you know, obviously, it's it's out there for everyone to see. But mm-hmm. that there's been a orchestrated effort to sort of tear down Sir Johnny McDonald, taken off the you know the the dollar bill. The schools have been changed, yeah. the highway, the statues, and then you go over to the house that he lived in, historic national historic site, and they talk about how horrible he was. And I think that that is a core that it comes down to journalists where. There's a narrative that comes from government, and if you don't follow, we saw that with the, the pandemic and the vaccines, and you see it with wars, as I referenced earlier. And I think what I was trying to say was that you've got to stand still and step back and say, what exactly are you telling me? And is it accurate? And is it something that you just want to parrot? Or do you want to challenge it? You know, the, the left uh, does a really good job of that. They call it the fact-checking. And I think that that is important to fact check 
but it's also important to not to be sure that you're not in some sort of a you know what's that you know kind of like a tunnel into this thing where if you say one thing that's not part of the narrative Echo chamber. You're out and uh, and I think that's the number one thing more mm-hmm. than meta and all that stuff that we've got to really be careful of you've got to have independent souls that are prepared to you know maybe they even may get it wrong sometimes but they're not afraid of, of the system and I think that's you know and, and this is this is what you and I have done for so many years I mean I've gotten it wrong but then I just I, I apologize. And I just say, you know, give them the best shot. I did research as much as I could. And, uh, you know, if you get it right far more frequently than you get it wrong, then you've really accomplished something because it's communication with your, with your you audience. If you don't want an outcome, you're usually in trouble. Yeah. Or you're Joel, not in trouble. If you, if you don't want an outcome, like you're not trying to push something. The minute you want something to be and you say, look, you're, you're not worthy because you have that point of view as opposed to saying, let me listen to that point of view. Yeah. Express it though, right? They have to express it and not just express the, uh, the, the speech that was prepared for them. I do have to get, I said I'd get callers on the air. Uh, Greg in London. Greg, what, what do you want from media? Well, uh, like I like some of the old school uh, journalism. I want honesty, integrity. I want people to be knowledgeable on both sides of the issue and the, and the, and the narrative. I, I, I want, uh, and like you just, your guest just nailed it, not afraid to stand up against the people who are trying to push you to say things. Sometimes when I listen to radio shows now, it's almost as if the program manager or whoever comes in with a sheet of paper and says, so just about every station, this is what you're going to read today. I hope you don't. I hope you don't get that impression from this program. No, like I said to your screener, and this is the honest to God truth, Roy. The only shows, radio shows that I now listen to, is your show and one local one that sometimes it's iffy. Okay, over the years, I used to listen to a lot of radio shows where you could mm-hmm. phone up, you could voice your opinion and not get hung up on mm-hmm. or not get marked that they don't take your calls okay. anymore because that's happened to me. Yeah. I have I am down to one really Greg I Greg time. I Greg I appreciate it. I'm sorry. I'm going to hang up on you don't but only because I'm out of time. But thank you. Thank you so much for your call. He's right though. Well, yeah, he is right. But the thing is I listen to all kinds of radio, different kinds of bands on stories. You want to be challenged when you're listening to it. If you're just hearing what you want to hear that's not good either. And so, you know, that's the, the, the whole challenge of it is to, yeah. to listen and, and, you know, obviously... Oh, boy. Point of view. Joe, I, you know, time just gets the better of us. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. Thank you.